Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Atheism in the world today going to be a little different than what we've got going on in other religious groups that we've looked at, particularly when we try to understand how many atheists there are. That title certainly carries some baggage in our culture, and so I can tell you that the polls will vary widely, not just in America but around the world, although it's becoming more appropriate, I guess, socially and uh, even more trendy and popular in some areas to call yourself an atheist. We have to take these numbers with a little uh, variance in our mind that they may not be 100% accurate. Because when it comes down to saying, okay, I am an atheist, I will check that box, uh, not everyone is willing even in our day to do it. The polls, and I've read all kinds of polls from all kinds of research centers from reputable groups uh, of large swaths of what they can do in terms of research, both here and abroad. I'm going to pin this number at about 5%, just so I don't have to give you a range. That may be low as you read some polls. It may be a little higher when you read some surveys, but I I think that probably is, is where we're at nationally. Most atheists in the world are concentrated in China. That would be, I think most people would agree, most researchers and sociologists would agree, that is where we have close to 50%. Some polls will say it's over 50%, 52. I've seen as high as 55, uh, some less than 47, but around 47% in Japan, 31. And in France, 29. I've read as high as 32 or 34, I think, in France, depending on who you read. But that, I mean, we could go down the list. As a matter of fact, uh, not that Wikipedia is always trustworthy, but they, they do break down uh, several countries, though they don't have all of them listed, and you can sort that by those that would say positively they are atheists. But that's hard for us to gauge, and unless you're doing a lot of international travel, we're dealing with what's going on in America, so let's think that through in America. Now, this is almost it's difficult to nail down in terms of those research groups and sociologists and, and pollsters that go out and try and get these polls. But let's just put it at this right now. 3%, I think the current number is 3.1% to be exact, a little less than 10 million people in our country, which is not a small number, uh, but certainly it pales in comparison to those that would adhere to some other religious label in our country. But I will say it's certainly on the rise as a self-identification. Today, more people are willing to say it than they ever have before. But when you know that it's trendy to say that you're an atheist, I think you need to understand that when there are follow-up questions for people that say they are atheists, you're going to get a lot of conflicting information and conflicting statistics. For instance, uh, 8% of the atheists who marked and identified themselves as atheists say they believe in a god and and, uh, some kind of spirit that oversees things. Now, I'm thinking you don't understand the question if you believe in a god or some overseeing spirit. That, but again, a lot of people will equate the word atheist with a, an, an anti-Christian, 
right? And, and a lot of people want to be anti-Christian today, and so they will say that. So almost 10%, if you think about it, that's a pretty big number. 11% of those that are atheists and agnostics, and I've quoted different surveys on this, uh, Pew Research, um, Gallup, uh, even uh, Barna polls, and they vary. But I've tried to find the latest poll that I could find uh, on this, and, and that is that about 11% of atheists and or agnostics say they pray weekly or monthly. Uh, to, to whom I'm not sure, but they are praying. And this number even is more interesting, 6%, and this is the conservative number, say they pray every day. That's a habit I wish I could get theists to engage in every day. But that is an interesting number, which again shows, I think, that what we've got is a lot of people wanting to say they're atheists or agnostics, and it certainly is an increasingly cool thing to say that you are, but not, uh, not a practicing atheist, which is a weird way to put it. 31% of atheists say, now this is a big number, that they feel spiritual peace. Now again, you'd like to equate, as we'll go through the night, uh, atheism with naturalism uh, that believes there is nothing beyond what you can sense in the senses, the tactile experience of materialism in this world. Uh, so that's an interesting thing to even say that you feel spiritual peace when the leaders of uh, and the spokespersons of, of atheism will say you have no spirit. Uh, so to, to feel a spiritual peace is an interesting way to put it. And again, that speaks to how people are mentally approaching these surveys. Uh, so you may meet someone at work that says, yeah, I'm an atheist, but you know they're trying to seek some kind of inner peace, spiritual peace, they'll call it. 35% say they think often of the meaning of life, which by definition, you should understand that if there is no God, uh, and this is nothing but a cosmic accident and explosion, there is no meaning of life. So that should be a short time of pondering that question. Nevertheless, 35% say they regularly or often think about the meaning of life. 54% of atheists, which is a higher number than Christians, I, I will tell you, uh, say they feel a deep sense of wonder about the universe. Now, if you read the Bible, we should be uh, thinking that way. Uh, Psalm 8, Psalm 19, uh, the concepts of us looking back at God's handiwork and being impressed by that. Romans chapter 1, these are passages that, that Christians should be in awe of what we see in nature as a reflection of what God has done. But 54% of the atheists feel a deep sense of wonder about the universe, which really is right in line with what we'd expect if we understand what Romans chapter 1 says. And that's the great exchange that takes place. When they reject the God of creation, they turn to worshiping the, the, the created order itself. And, and that certainly is, is, is the truth. And we see that. The contradictions of atheists and how modern atheists are thinking today. Uh, I had Ray Comfort here, uh, I think it was in August, preaching in my, in my absence. And I think he was just coming out with that video, um, The Atheist Delusion. Did any of you watch that? Now it's available for free on YouTube. You can watch it. But what's interesting about watching that, and, and Ray's good at that kind of, you know, off-the-cuff campus dialogue... And, and what he does, if you haven't seen it, is engage with people that confess that they are atheists. And a lot of them are young people. Some of it was filmed on the Cal State Long Beach campus. You can see and, and you can tell. You've got a lot of Southern California people saying they are atheists, but then uh, revealing the contradictions in their thinking. Pretty, uh, pretty common. And again, I think certainly as a college person, 18 to 22-year-old, very trendy for you to say. And there's a lot of positive social affirmation to say that you're an atheist. Uh, nevertheless, that's worth watching uh, on YouTube. If you just search the Atheist Delusion or Ray Comfort's name, it should come up. 
Uh, a lot of these numbers are coming from the Pew Research Organization. I settled in on, on one organization that I thought was very credible on these stats. Um, atheists in America, let's keep thinking this through, 32% of them say they look to science for morals, which is an interesting thing. Again, if I'm going to look to science for morals, uh, I'm certainly not going to have a very uh, compassionate uh, or ethical uh, treatment of my fellow man. Uh, it's interesting we talk about animals and we talk about the humane treatment of animals, which I always think is an interesting contradiction. Animals don't treat each other humanely like humans. They treat each other like animals because they are animals. But we want to treat them like humans. And the point is, if you're going to treat animals like humans, you're assuming there's a distinction between the ethics and morality of human beings than there is in, quote-unquote, nature and the instinctual response of, of, of creatures on the planet. Uh, we are supposed to be different and set apart from them. So basically you're saying we want the animalistic treatment of humans, right, is what you're saying if you're looking to nature for your morals. And yet there's, you've got nowhere else to go. Well, you do have somewhere else to go uh, as an atheist, but that is almost, a, I mean, a third of all atheists saying we look to, to science for morality. It's the wrong place to go for that. Just to give you some demographics on this, almost 70% of the people that claim to be atheists are men. I won't comment on that. I don't know what to say about that. Uh, I'm sure you ladies have something to say about that, but I just thought that was an interesting fact. 78% of them are white, Caucasian males. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. They're white, white. And this includes uh, women as well, almost 80%. I thought this was interesting the more I studied atheism this week. 69% of them are Democrats. 92% of atheists favor same-sex marriage, which uh, should be no surprise to you. 87% are pro-abortion. So those are things you might expect. And when atheists today, and maybe you've had exposure to modern atheists, they're working hard to try and tell you you don't have to believe in God to have morality. Uh, certainly we would look at what we understand as a compassionate response to other human beings and understanding something about the sanctity and, and the special nature of life. And we don't see it lived out in the polling as it relates to those who are self-proclaimed atheists. All right. This may be elementary, but let's define atheism. seems like anyone should be able to do that in our kindergarten class down the hall. But uh, let's work this through. Obviously, it's uh, not obviously. Perhaps it's not obvious to you. It's a Greek compound word that's just transliterated into English, like a lot of words that I like to point out to you are when they are. A, alpha, is a negation, something that's not or non. And, and theism... Uh, is the description of a system of thought from the Greek word theos. And the word theos, as you know, we get the word theology from it, is the word God. So this is simply, um, you know, not, not God, if you're going to be very literal. And what we're saying is someone is convinced, and there's the key word, that there is no God or gods. Or you could even go beyond that. Any supernatural power, anything beyond uh, what we can see. Now, there's not consistency in that because I'm explaining naturalism when I say that. But there's nothing other than the, the, the building blocks, the physical, tactile things that we have in this, in this uh, world. I want to say created world, but in this world. Uh, and yet, the key concept is here. They are convinced in that. They are settled in that. Uh, in their minds, beyond any reasonable doubt. And a, a true atheist is going to say all religious beliefs are false because all religious beliefs are based in something that is supra or supernatural. It's beyond what's natural. And since we don't believe in that, then you know, the basis, the foundational starting point for religion doesn't make any sense. It's not true. 
Therefore, anything that springs from that, though it may share some of the ethics that they'll want to borrow or participate in or share, uh, certainly the religion itself is false. Uh, and they will say there's no evidence for what is supernatural. There's, there is no evidence. Uh, they, they, whatever evidence is available doesn't add up, and it doesn't lead them into any persuasive, uh, into any persuasive point of saying there is uh, a God. So, simple enough. You know that, but let's just, for the sake of completeness, talk that through. Now, let's define that uh, in contrast to the word the agnostics, agnosticism. Uh, that also is a word that's transliterated from Greek, beginning with uh, alpha, the uh, negation in Greek, no or non. Uh, so that, that's easy. Uh, and then the, the second part comes from the Greek word gnosis. We get Gnosticism from this. We get the word diagnosis, prognosis. All those are Greek compound transliterations, and we have that here. A uh, or non or not knowledge is that we don't have enough knowledge to be convinced that there is a God. I'm unconvinced that there is a God or gods because of the lack of evidence. Other than being confirmed in it, uh, I'm just so far unconvinced. And I say it that way, although there's two categories of, of agnostics. They're claiming, some of them, simply that there's an inefficient evidence for God. There's not enough evidence for God, so I can't make a judgment. They're refraining from making judgment on this. They're disapproving at the confidence of the theist, as you would imagine, and they're also disapproving of the confidence or the surety of the, of the, of the atheist. They don't like either one of those. Now, some would say... The reason I can't adjudicate on the question of whether there's a God or not is because uh, there's not enough knowledge out there to make a judgment. There's insufficient evidence. And they would claim the knowledge of God is impossible because of the lack of evidence. He didn't leave enough of, of, a, of a clue for us. Others would claim that there is enough evidence. Perhaps they don't know the evidence they don't know, and they could be convinced, uh, and maybe they will be in time. And that's the kind of agnostic that you can work with in terms of saying, let's consider the evidence. So some claim knowledge of God is impossible to have. You cannot uh, get enough evidence. It's impossible to gather that evidence, and it's not available. And others would say it may be available. I just haven't yet encountered it. So either way, agnostics are reserving judgment. They're trying to remain neutral in this, in this debate. Now, as I put in the graphic, I, you know, I don't know, and, and you don't either. Well, that's the one that says there's not enough evidence, not the one that is open, and that's the minority of agnostics that say, well, there may be evidence, I just haven't been exposed to it. It's the claim that knowledge of God is impossible who would say, I don't know, and, and you don't either. And that's the majority of, of agnostics. Matter of fact, most atheists, if you work with them for more than five minutes, will claim that they are agnostic if they're honest, because to say there's no evidence of God is to really make an assumption that you have all the available evidence and you've considered all the available evidence. And most honest people, when pressed, will say, well, maybe there is evidence I haven't encountered. And if that's the case, perhaps I could be convinced. And, and that moves them from, from atheist to agnostic. Now, there are, as I've quoted from this platform before, a lot of religious atheists today. As a matter of fact, that's uh, more and more of a common category in, in our world. They carry a religious label, but they don't believe there is a God. Uh, they're uh, we're ready to call themselves uh, whatever it might be, a Christian, or even more specifically, a Methodist, or a, you know, a Unitarian, or you know, I'm, a, I'm a Muslim, or I'm a Jew, or what have you, by religion, but I'm not, I, I don't believe in God. Uh, they practice religion. That may be more than just carrying a label, but they engage in religious practices. They go to religious services. Um, 
I've got people that come to this church every Sunday that would claim that they are atheists, but they are here and they're a part of this. Oftentimes it has to do with their family members. It has to do with some feeling they get in the service. Uh, Sometimes they think it's intellectually interesting. Uh, Others like the worship experience. Some like the fellowship. Some are trying to sell insurance to other people. I don't know, but they're, they're here and they, they, they go through the motions, but they don't, they don't believe in God. Uh, some of them are religious atheists because uh, over all the, you know, the, the denials to the contrary, they need something other than science to determine the morality for them. So they'll say, well, let me pick a religion that I think has good morality. And, and when we've gone through some of these past religious groups, and I've put them on the screen and I've showed you the adherents from Hollywood in particular, these famous people, these sports stars, these musicians. A lot of these people are choosing these religions because they like the morality of these religions, not because they're so convinced in some kind of overarching God. Now, that's not the case in every uh, situation, but often uh, it is. They like the ethical code and they think that that's important. I find a lot of atheists come to church when they have children. That's the time when they say, well, I, I, I want my kid, you know, not, not to be a, you know, a drug addict, and I don't know how to do that. I don't want to send them to AA as a, as a there's no AA youth group for non, you know, participants in, in drugs. So let's, you know, let's send them to church. Maybe that'll be a kind of a, a uh, insurance policy that they won't get into trouble. So you'll find atheists at church or religious groups uh, seeking an ethical code. Uh, Some do it for political or cultural identity. Uh, Judaism is classic in this regard, and so is Islam. Uh, You know, my neighbors are uh, Muslims. They will say they're Muslims, and to them that's a political and cultural identity, uh, but they do not practice the religion, and I wonder if I press them far enough if they would even claim they believe in God. Uh, So that certainly is more and more common, it seems. And in a day when Islam in particular, and Judaism also, uh, has so much um, political baggage and geopolitical issues in terms of territories and so forth, you're going to find more people that don't believe in the theology, but they will believe in the cultural or political agendas of those religions. Uh, Here's an example. I gave you one in a sermon not long ago, but here's another one of a man who writes uh, about his experience. He says, "I, I love reading about Judaism every night, and I love the Shagrim, the Jewish holidays, most of all. Uh, What is more, unlike many atheists, calling himself an atheist, I never felt forced to choose between my Jewish practice, this is a religious practice, you know, every Jewish holiday is a religious holiday, uh, and my lack of faith. I didn't believe it. When I told my Jewish friends and family that I was an atheist, it spurred some interesting conversations, but no one seemed particularly bothered. Now, I would be bothered if the religion I'm a part of is not bothered by the fact that I don't believe what they believe, but... Apparently, in this guy's synagogue, that wasn't the case. Belief in God has never been a litmus test for my involvement in Jewish spaces. Questioning and doubting were encouraged by my Jewish day school, and so I joined a, quote-unquote, proud tradition of Jewish atheists. So this is happening, and as I said, you can find it often in Islam and and Judaism. You can also find it in Christianity as well. But you've got people that are claiming uh, a religious container, that they, they sit and, and define themselves in. Not just the label, but the practice as well. But they deny that there is a God. They believe in everything that the atheists would believe except for the fact that they want that experience in, in religion. Which is unfortunate. If you can have religious systems that are going to let atheists feel comfortable in their midst. I mean, that, that's hard. I hope the atheists that come to our church are not comfortable here. Then there are uh, practical atheists, which I talk about all the time from the platform, one of my favorite graphics there of the practical atheist, who likes to uh, say they believe in God. They will profess and affirm a belief in God, but they'll act as though he does not exist. 
They live that way. And in some sense, all of my preaching is directed toward the aspects of our lives where we are practical atheists. I mean, all of our sin comes down basically to the fact that we're failing to trust and, and, and affirm the reality of God's presence and, and God's activity in our lives and, and in our actions. So in a sense, we deal with this all the time, as Titus 1.6 puts it, that people profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. There is what I call classic hypocrisy. And we're always dealing with that uh, from the pulpit in dealing with our sanctification. We want people to live the realities of what they believe. And that there's distance between those two. If it's minor in your life, that's fantastic. Uh, but in, in some people's lives, it's, it, there's a huge gap. And that is a uh, practical atheist. Now, they're not atheists in their creed, but they are atheists by the way they act. And if it's just a periodic and small gap, I can understand that there are, there can, there be, you can be a Christian, but your sin this afternoon or last night, uh, in, in a sense, is you uh, engaging in your activity as though God was not there. And that's, you read the first nine chapters of Proverbs, so much of that dealing with the fact that you just need to live the reality as though God that you confess is actively involved uh, in your environment, practical atheists. Then there are a word that's become more and more popular in our day, the nuns. And when you say that on a radio broadcast or a blog, you picture a nun in a Roman Catholic church with a habit on their head or whatever in a convent. That's not what we're talking about. Not an N-U-N, but a N-O-N-E-S, a nun. Um, The nuns are those who are claiming to be unreligious. Now, this is one step, it seems, in the direction of classic atheism from some kind of theism, but they have really carved out their own niche to say, this is how I like to identify myself. I avoid labels. I don't want a label. And I'm not just saying I don't want to be called a Presbyterian or a Baptist. I want to go to a non-denominational church. I'm saying I don't want to be called a Hindu. I don't want to be called a Buddhist. I don't want to be called a Christian. I don't want to be called a Jew. I, I just, I want to have a belief in God uh, of some kind, but I, I don't want to be associated with any kind of, of religious or uh, religion or, or, or belief system. Uh, so they're unaffiliated with any belief system. They don't even like to subscribe in their own conversation to being aligned with any belief system. And, and this is the fastest growing segment of American culture right now. This phrase, I remember reading this book a long time ago when it came out. I'm sure there's been several with that title since, but it's the first one I came across, a very well-documented book uh, called Spiritual But Not Religious. And that's the phrase uh, I've heard in evangelism for decades now, but increasingly so. That's just the standard position of most people. I'm not religious, which means I don't want to be a part of your church. I don't want to read your Bible. I don't want to go to any church. I don't want a label on my life. But I want to think that somehow I've got a connection with whatever God that might be. So that's cool to be spiritual. It's not cool to be religious. Uh, These are the nuns. Now, note this. In 1990, there were only 8% of the people that would say they are religiously unaffiliated and not willing to identify themselves or align themselves with some kind of religious group. Today, it's over 20%, and that 20% is probably about three years old on the latest research I could find, and I'll bet it's even higher than that. This has been the fastest-growing segment of the American population. And, and of course, you're going to guess this, that among the 18 to 22-year-olds, that number right at least three years ago was 33%. One-third, go to a college campus uh, and, and ask people where they stand. Not only the atheistic numbers higher, but the intermediate step between classic theism, no matter what form that might be in, uh, is this big growing segment of people that are going to say, I'm not religious. I'm I'm unaffiliated. I don't carry a label. But I like to think I'm spiritual, and I like to think there is a God. 
And I'm sure Ray, for instance, going out on the college campuses looking for those atheists, which not too hard to find on a college campus, he probably ran into two, I don't know, I have to ask him, for every one that would say, yeah, I'm an atheist, probably, you know, he'd run into at least two before that that would say, I'm spiritual but not religious. I don't call myself a Christian or whatever or a Jew or a Hindu, but I, I believe in God in some way. That's where most people are today. And we are following behind the UK in this. It's as high as 50% right now. If you ever listen to Al Mohler uh, on the briefing, man, he's always talking about the nuns and, and talking about the UK. And this number, by the way, much like the numbers with atheism, particularly in Europe, uh, are, it's a wide, varied polling number. So that I've seen much higher than that in some polls and a little bit less I picked 50, which was one of the polls that I read of UK population saying we're, we're uh, not religious. And it's interesting because there's a state church, right, the Anglican church. Uh, you've got, uh, unlike America, that wasn't going to set up their country with a state church. You weren't going to establish a, a state religion, right, obviously, the First Amendment. The, the, the irreligious nature of the average person in, in the UK is, is higher. I mean, it's, it's surpassed even the 18 to 22-year-olds in our country. Now, here's a little tidbit for you. I, I read in one study that 35% of the first-generation nuns, now think about that. We've got to have a lot of first-generation nuns, right? They came from some kind of religious background, but they are the first generation in their family to say, I'm not religious. That, 35% come from Catholic upbringings, which is an interesting tidbit for us just to know when you've got a system like Catholicism that allows, you know, these folks coming out of it to, so many of them do abandon their their faith. It's a mission field for sure. Not only are they right for the gospel of grace, because if you are believing what Catholicism teaches, as we went through uh, weeks back, uh, you're hungry for some kind of assurance that God has settled this in Christ's death. Uh, but beyond that, you've got a lot of people just throwing up their hands and saying, I'm done. I, I'm, I'm not going to call myself religious anymore. I may believe in God. I'll just try not to think about it. The nuns in our country today, the most in America, of course, you're going to find on the West Coast. California, Oregon, Washington, the biggest concentration. Uh, we are not the Bible Belt. We're the atheist, agnostic, unaffiliated nun belt is what we are. Um, and a matter of fact, the highest... I mean, almost they all tracked Oregon, Washington, and California. The West Coast was, you know, the most irreligious triad of states with the exception of California in the last 10 or 15 years with the influx of of the uh, illegal immigrants in our state has raised the number of professing Catholics. And so with so many coming from the southern border into our state, you have these poles starting to shift to where now Oregon and Washington are less religious than Californians. But, um, you know, that has to do a lot with those coming through our, our border down south. States, though, other states we can look at, Vermont, 34%, uh, New Hampshire, and that figures, right? You talk about ethics and the tie to morality. You can see that. New Hampshire, 29%. Wyoming, 28%. Uh, Alaska, that should be no surprise either if you know anything about the cultural climate in Alaska. Not just the, the climate climate, but the cultural climate. Uh, and Maine, 25%. These are folks that will not claim they're a part of any religious organization. Uh, and again, some of those are, are going to be the people that are not bold enough to say I'm an atheist, but they are going to say I'm not religious. I, I don't have a religious affiliation. I don't go to church. I don't read a Bible. I don't, I don't follow a, a priest or an imam or a, or a pastor, a rabbi, the nuns. All right. Then there's the anti-theist, and I'm going to coin this word. Well, I didn't coin it. I, I 
It's the way I spell it, I do. But you'll read more and more about people that are atheists, but they are they're more than atheists. They're anti-theists. This is not just a departure from theism, which, as Al Mohler pointed out in his book on atheism, which I thought was very insightful, there used to be, in leaving theism, a sense of loss. And there was, in Bertrand Russell's book, Why I'm Not a Christian, you know, there's this, this sense of, we've, I've, I've, I've given up something. I've lost something. Well, now there's a, a turn where so many atheists are, are, they're not just saying, well, I, I've missed that. I'm glad you have your teddy bear and your blanket, and you know, I don't have it now, and I'm going to man up in the world. Now it's uh, this anti-religious position. You know, science flies you to the moon, which, again, this is always pitted against you. You've got to be a smart person and believe in science, uh, whatever that is defined to be, or you can be a religious person and end up, you're going to end up killing people by flying planes into buildings eventually. So this is an active opposition to theism. These are active opponents of theism. They don't think theism should be believed by anyone. They're not giving it up for themselves, saying, I don't choose to have it. They don't want anyone to be a part of of believing in a God. They see it as dangerous, societally dangerous. It's bad for our country. They see it as something that must be stopped, and not just, not just a belief in God, but a belief in anything, anything that is uh, supernatural, anything that goes beyond the natural, any metaphysical realities, you cannot believe in those. You shouldn't believe in angels. You shouldn't believe in spirits. You shouldn't believe in a pantheon of gods. Uh, this is bad for us, and it needs to go away. Anti-theist. And what you'll find as we move through the history of theism now on the back of your worksheet, this is definitely where we've ended up in our day. The history of atheism. We talk a lot about atheism in our culture, but you need to re- realize this goes all the way back. And you want to go back to the very beginning. I mean, if you don't see the practical atheism of Adam and Eve in the garden reaching out for that piece of fruit, I mean, there was a, a, you know, a moment of practical atheism. But in terms of those that are committed atheists, you'll see that sprinkled throughout the Bible. The Psalms uh, bring it up a few times. Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, as repeated a couple times in scripture, there is no God. This is a you know, castigated and, and, and despised as a, as a position in this verse, of course, but uh, seen as a foolish thing, but clearly nothing new. We saw it there. There's some diagnosis of this in passages like Psalm 10:4. In the pride of his face or his heart, the wicked do not seek God in all his thoughts, uh, or all his thoughts are, there is no God. That's what he keeps telling himself. That's what he keeps doing in, in the quest to you know, fulfill his own desires or promote himself. He doesn't want to be under the authority of God, which we see all throughout the Bible. You start looking for that paradigm, you think of the second psalm. They want to burst the, the bonds from God. We don't want to bow our knee to God in Jesus' parable in the New Testament, right? We don't want this man to rule over us. We want freedom. We want autonomy. We want what we have in the book of Judges. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. In that day, there was no king in Israel, for everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's a theological statement, not just a political statement in Israel. Psalm 94, to quote a third psalm here, they say the Lord does not see, even if they have a sense that maybe you're telling me there's a God, but there's no God that's, that's sentient or cogent or a God that is perceptive, right? The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. We keep talking about this God of our, our nation. Uh, and then the response of the psalmist, understand, O dullest of the peoples, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? And the tie of creation to theism is something we see throughout Scripture, and that's why the assault upon theism is always going to be focused at 
at the core, which is our origins. The battle of origins is the battle ultimately uh, that determines theism or atheism. And you see this not because some people haven't tried to merge the two or, you know, somehow coalesce their views of, of evolutionary theory and theism. People do that all the time. There's entire movements all about trying to reconcile those two. Uh, but ultimately, the connection between creation and a God who creates something out of nothing and uh, my accountability to that God and the reality of that God, I mean, you've got to deal with that. And as, as others have put it, you know, we have to explain why there is something rather than nothing. And, and atheists want to, to give an answer for that, and theists want to give an answer for that as well. And that's the ultimate problem, that we're here, right? The ultimate problem is that there is stuff. The ultimate problem is that there is a problem that we can, we can, we can even imagine. Uh, and so many have written on this, uh, C.S. Lewis, and, and there's just a slew of people that have dealt with the problem of reality as the real crux of atheism and, and, and theism. In the New Testament, of course, it's no different. We see it uh, in classic passages like the one I started to quote earlier in, in Romans chapter 1. They, the people that uh, are on the, the docket here suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, they exchange the glory of the immortal God. Instead of recognizing that, instead of participating in that, whether instead of worshiping that, they've exchanged that all for the image resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They've made up all these idols. And God said, fine, then. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Do what you want. And it's all impure in his eyes, but he gave them up to their hearts, uh, to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And if you don't think there's a connection between ethics and theism, I mean, clearly the Bible has spelled that out, and we see it in the polls that I've already showed you. Because they exchanged the truth about God, they don't want to buy that, they don't want to submit themselves to that for a lie, and they've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's why more atheists stand in awe of creation than Christians do. Uh, interestingly enough. And it ends a few verses later in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, don't want to do it, not interested in that, don't want the accountability of that, God gave them up to a debased mind. God says, fine then, you reason your way with the uh, presupposition that there is no God, and what will follow is a lifestyle that is corruptive, and, and that's what we see in our day, uh, certainly. The, the hostility toward life itself Though they're constantly trying to defend themselves that we can have morality without God, uh, they've got a real problem and they protest too much on that point. Um, and they do what ought not to be done. Between the Testaments, and I thought this would be an important place to go, the ancient debates were largely just to define it, what or who is God? Is it polytheism? Is it monotheism? Is it this kind of God? Is it that kind of God? Is God like this? Does God value this? Does God not value this? It was often a debate that was often seen under a heading of agnosticism. Even in the Bible, atheism, the fool that says there's no God, the point is I want to have God approve what I am doing. As we read so often recently in our daily Bible reading in the major prophets, they want to say, you know, God is who I want him to be that allows me to operate the way I operate. And, and so... It's often an abandonment of God, and the prophets will say, you don't believe in God, you don't believe the God that is, uh, but in reality we're debating the definition of God. But in the 4th century before Christ, Greek philosophy uh, started to popularize a kind of uh, skepticism that basically suspended judgment on metaphysics and theology. You want to make statements about things that we cannot see, that everyone naturally, as Solomon put it, had eternity set in their hearts by their creator. As it says in Romans 1, the truth about God is known to them, but we want to deny that. We didn't deny it at first in the fourth century in, in Greek philosophy, but we did begin to say, let's just suspend judgment on it because who can really know? 
So we had this birth, basically, of what we have even today, and we don't use the terms too much anymore, but classic uh, skepticism, and, and that took place in Greek philosophy that led up, of course, to New Testament times. The Hellenization of the world, Alexander the Great, the learning centers in, in Alexandria, Egypt, all of these things uh, birthed a time of kind of intellectual uh, skepticism where that was the academic norm. Now, what was interesting is about the time that was ramping up, uh, God, after this period of silence for 400 years, breaks through time and space, and Christ comes and, and, and rocks the world. Uh, and, and when that happened, uh, you saw this skepticism of the Hellenistic world start to fade away. It didn't become, uh, it didn't take root after those hundreds of years, and hundreds of years I understand is a long time, but you started to see the dominance of Christianity uh, eschew and, 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 and dispel uh, the kind of, of suspending of judgment on, on the spiritual metaphysical world. Even the things that happened in response or in protest against Christianity was still now much more theistic than it was the 3rd and 2nd century B.C., which is interesting. All right, so you've got Christianity dominating and growing and changing the whole world. It's really hard, and some would go all the way to the post-Reformational period to see any kind of real skepticism return the way that it did in, in Greek philosophy before the time of Christ. But uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, for instance, promotes, he's not an atheist, but he promoted that uh, in his book, The, the theory of ruling without God. You know, everyone wanted to rule as a king, you know, they'll get away with what they can get away with, but in thoughts of us as being a steward of God, this kind of, uh, you know, even in Israel, the anointed one who serves as some kind of uh, intermediary ruler, arche, some kind of functioning leader over the people for the stead of God. Well, Machiavelli says, no, you, you rule for yourself. You rule for your own ego. Uh, you don't rule out of, of some deference to some in, invisible God, even though he wasn't an atheist. Uh, but it became a real foundational thought uh, to, to atheism, what would develop into classic atheism today. Uh, you saw then in the 17th century a comeback of, of, of agnosticism that you hadn't seen really in all those intervening years in the medieval days, you know, which a lot wasn't going on uh, in a lot of places, although I shouldn't say that. A lot of great scholasticism in, in many corners of the world, but... Nevertheless, you saw this agnosticism start to make a, uh, a comeback. Of course, this is when we have the Enlightenment, and we talked about that in a recent sermon, the, the heroes and the stars of the Enlightenment trying to say, let's free ourselves from this kind of, as, as, as David Hume uh, put it, this, um, he said, let's free ourselves as a society from this self-imposed immaturity. We all want to live as though God is watching over us and will judge us for our deeds. Let's just stop thinking that way, and let's define everything horizontally. Uh, and you've got that going on. Even though guys like Hume and, and Kant are not classic atheists, you had this, again, another step in the direction of what we find today in a very concentrated form. What Hume was saying, and again, he was writing against the supernatural, and whenever we deal with the issue of miracles and, and the, the rationality of the miracles being possible, uh, we always have to deal with David Hume's arguments because David Hume basically convinced his peers that there is no metaphysical, you know, there's no possibility for us to have metaphysical knowledge. So what goes beyond the physical, we can't possibly know. And, and all these things together coming through the Enlightenment led to what would become classic atheism as we know it today. And you've got a lot of things happening in that Enlightenment period that, that left people scratching their heads about how they were going to put together their views of God. And, and uh, that was the fertile ground for what we had then as the birth of classic atheism. 
So let's deal with classic atheism. And there are some luminaries that make this happen. And you may not recognize this picture. Do you recognize this picture? This is Charles Darwin, born in 1809. Charles Darwin, 1809, 1882 is when he died. Of course, he was an Englishman. He was uh, actually raised in the Church of England, Anglican Church. Uh, He went to Cambridge thinking he was going to be a pastor, going to train for the pastorate. Of course, he got into the natural sciences and became a geologist, still was a theist. Uh, When he went on his famous exploration on the Beagle, uh, you can find his notes quoting the Bible, uh, giving credit to God for what he was discovering. Uh, You saw that happening. Over the years of his research, though, Uh, You could see a loss of his confidence in Scripture. That's where you started to see, I guess you could go back to his turning his back on what he was called to do initially, but nevertheless, you saw that be the ultimate breaching of the dam that led to a a freedom in his thinking uh, to continue to take his theories where they went. And there was one emotionally impactful event in his life, the, the death of his daughter, that basically then pushed him out completely of all of these uh, religious practices. He stopped going to church. He was no longer participating in it. His biographers will say he lost his faith or it vanished or it dissipated in, in the pain of him losing his daughter, which, by the way, you see a lot even today in those that are um, Bible-believing people that, that turn their back on God. There's often a uh, catalytic event that is painful or emotional. Nevertheless, even after all of that and his research and the development of his theories, which are not like the theories today, we call it Darwinism today, but it's very different than what he was uh, advocating. Nevertheless, there was an underlying theism, or I should say maybe an overarching theism. You didn't run into it very often, but it was there. And when pressed, he would not say he was an atheist. As a matter of fact, he said and called himself near the end of his life an agnostic uh, and said, you know, that's, that's what I am now. So the once training to be pastor, uh, and of course, everyone's looking back to his watershed thoughts on the origin of the species, that became something that came through a man who had a pilgrimage in his loss of, of faith and confidence in, in Scripture. The Descent of Man, for instance, in 1871, uh, you can find the most on this discussion regarding his theological views. Nevertheless, his theory, as you know, became a key to understanding modern atheism. Like our passage says, listen, if you're going to say God is not God who sees and judges and will hold you accountable, then as the biblical authors would say through the inspiration of the Spirit, then you're not understanding creation. God who made the eye certainly is going to see, he made the ear, he's going to hear, he perceives us. Well, once you make that disconnect and can somehow explain the design of our bodies and, and the reality of our cognizant interaction with one another as something that didn't need God, even though that wasn't the explicit purpose of what Darwin was doing, you certainly are setting up society and culture for what we know of today as, as classic uh, atheism. So there's one person that we cannot ignore. Here's another. Now, I know you know who this guy is. Who's this guy? Karl Marx, right? 1818 to 1883, who, from what I remember, never worked a day in his, in his life. He was raised, I guess, in a home, and I probably know less about him than some of you, but uh, I'm not here to talk about his politics. Here to talk about his theology. He was raised, at least after age six, in a Lutheran home. His family converted to Lutheranism at age six, uh, and he at least towed the line in terms of what they asked him to do until he got to college. And though I don't have all the details on that 
departure, by the time he was in college, he was an outspoken uh, militant atheist. As a matter of fact, out from that time on in his life, he was saying things like religion uh, it is the worst thing that can happen for humanity. It debases humanity. It's an embarrassment to humanity uh, because there's nothing higher than man. This is it. We are at the apex. And, and as you know, his political theories, that is what he was uh, basing them on. Religion, as you know, his most famous quote is the opiate of the masses. Uh, it is the sigh of the oppressed. Another famous quote from Karl Marx. It's an illusory happiness. You're trying to hug an invisible teddy bear uh, for your own uh, comfort, and it's not real, and people need to, and he called people openly in society to give up their illusions. So Karl Marx was one certainly trying to see society affected by an atheistic mindset, which he saw as a promotion, not as the kind of uh, you know Bertrand Russell departure from Christianity as a sad, I'm missing something, but a... Uh, a very bold move into an atheistic mindset, and can't we recognize we're at the top of the heap? There is no God over us. The mustache philosopher. This is uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844 to 1900, and he was probably the most outspoken in, in coming, speaking of militants. He was the one who coined the phrase, God is dead, and we have killed him. Uh, and that wasn't in, in sorrow that he said that. Interesting philosopher, very brilliant, young mind. He went out and... and, and out, you know, lapped his, his, his peers in terms of his academics. Uh, German philosopher, I should say, is from Germany. Not, but his belief is that God is, uh, is, is dead. That, what he meant by that is that the belief in God is untenable. And we've gotten to the place where we logically can evaluate the question. Therefore, you know, there's, we just can't, we can't tenably argue for the existence of God any longer. Matter of fact, he saw that we need to, much like Karl Marx, see ourselves not as the top of all things, though we are, but we can be so much more. The, the, you know, the Superman concept, if you know anything about philosophy or Nietzsche, that, I mean, the ubermensch, he's, he, that, that's what we need to become. And we cannot become the Superman that we can be. We can't reach our full potential until we release this straitjacket of Christianity. Christianity is the impediment. I mean, he was against theism in all forms, but he hated Christianity in particular. Uh, he saw it as the opposite of everything we should be. You know, everything from forgiveness that he saw as a weakness uh, that allowed us not to get what was rightfully our own and, 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 and establish ourselves for what we should be. Everything in Christianity, he would turn around to say, it's just the opposite of, of what, is, what is good. Uh, as a matter of fact, at the core of it, if you've read his philosophy or know his philosophy, it's the concept of envy. Envy, envy he says, is the, is the ultimate good. It's the fuel and the catalyst that moves me forward in life. And Christianity, from the Ten Commandments on, doesn't even want me to covet my neighbor's stuff. And, and I should be. That's the, the fuel that, that leads me to become the, the uber, ubermensch. I, I want to be that and, and envy is good. Christianity calls it bad. Uh, it's the enemy of societal progress. And much like Marx, it's going to do nothing but hold us back. Yeah, a vehement, angry enemy of theism and of Christianity in particular, and even Jesus. Matter of fact, the only redeemable character in all of the Bible is Pontius Pilate. <laughs> that was one of his quotes. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But uh, yeah, he hated Christianity. And he hated a lot of things. He hated a lot of his peers. He hated his mother. He hated his sister. He had a terrible, and I just had to add this. I'm not trying to create, don't believe in God, you get a terrible person. But this guy had a terrible life, a terrible family. His personal life was, was a mess. By the time he was at age 44, now he's teaching and he's doing all kinds of things. He went crazy. 
I mean, the last act I think that he did cogently, though it were cogently, he went up and hugged a horse and said something about his empathy for the horse or something. And, and from that point on, he was you know, not able to dress himself and feed himself. And the mother that he was on record of saying he hated was the only person to take him in, and she took care of him. And I forget how many years he lived, eight years, I think, maybe more, as this, you know, as this crazy person uh, with his mother taking care of him. His mother dies partway through that. His sister has to take over the care of him, which he'd also gone on record saying he hated. Uh, so here he is hated by, you know, having his clothes changed, you know, unable to care for himself by the family members. He had. It's just a pathetic story. And yet when you hear of Nietzsche, everyone loves his philosophy, but his own philosophy certainly didn't pan out very well for his life. He's a, a wreck of a person. And, and if you want to talk about practicing what you preach, if he practiced what he preached, which I think he did, you lose the sense of meaning and purpose and accountability and, and, and civility and everything else. And, and I, people won't agree with that assessment, but his life as most people want to say, I love his philosophy, I, I feel bad about his life. I think his life is the reflection of his philosophy. And he ends up dying in, in 1900. But anyway, one of the most famous and outspoken atheists who galvanized uh, culture. One more I'll add to this. You know this one? You psych majors? Yeah, there's Freud for you. Sigmund Freud, born in 1856, died in 1939. Austrian psychotherapist, as you know. We all have to study him as we studied... Uh, Psychology. Theism, he says, belief in God is an infantile illusion. It is a neurotic obsession, he called it, your faith in, in God. By the way, I don't know if you remember, it's a very short phrase I threw in there when we were studying L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard was exposed to a mentor when he was traveling, sailing around early on in his youth, who was a student of Freud. A lot of the conscious, unconscious mind, you psych majors, remember Freud's, you know, the conscious mind is really the irrelevant part. It's the unconscious mind that drives the conscious mind. Even just saying that, that that's back to Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard's concept. And we talked about the engrams and all of that and freeing yourself from that in the subconscious mind. And you've got the reactive mind, all that. I mean, this Freud's picture of all that certainly is, uh, you know, is what we saw in, um, in our study of, of Scientology. Anyway, his thought was, listen, we're growing up as a society. It's infantile. It's much like uh, Kant said, Immanuel Kant, we're going to free ourselves from this immaturity that we've imposed. Christianity is going to pass away. He was confident of that. He knew there would be an echo of it, that we would ha you know, have a hard time getting over Christianity and, and, and faith and theism, but he knew it would happen because we would be enlightened enough to know that our view of God is nothing but an imaginary father figure that we're replacing for our, our earthly father when we grow up. Christianity is nothing more, as I've said here in my own terms, this teddy bear that we want to hold and, and suck our thumb because we're afraid of, of reality. Christianity is that construct for consolation, he said. Religion is uh, really, and he tied a lot of this to the fear of nature, uh, just like in the evolutionist thought that everything in nature has a physical explanation. When you see it as some kind of evil in, in, in creation, you've got to realize you know, Christianity always becomes this default position, and we'll talk about the God of the gaps if we have time at the very end, but the idea here of, of religion being the antidote for your fears, it's, it's, a, it's a teddy bear, it's a blanket. It needs to be replaced. It needs to be replaced by reason. We need to think our way through life, not reach out to the invisible God that you can't see. So these are important people. Nietzsche, perhaps one of the most famous. And since our day, we live in such a psycholo psychologized culture. You know, I, I deal with that even this week. Someone attacking me just on the basis of psychology alone. The concepts that, that are derived from this period in the post-Enlightenment uh, era 
these are important names that led us to where we're at today, uh, as we'll try to summarize here briefly. The summary of the societal phases among the elite. And again, this is always among the elite. Why? Because God has placed eternity in our hearts, and we're always going to be fighting that natural knowledge. I say natural knowledge because God said it's available in nature and in conscience, Romans 1 and 2. We're always going to fight that in, in the population. So the elite is going to tell us, here's how we ought to think. And, and from, you know, the, the Greek philosophers all the way down to where we are in our study right now with guys like Nietzsche and, and Freud, uh, we're supposed to listen to them and do what they ask us to do, which is to grow up. And so what we've seen among the elite pre-17th century is that it's very difficult for you in the elite to be an atheist. You can, I imagine, be a throwback to some Greek philosopher and be a skeptic, but to really declare that you don't believe in God, that was hard before the 17th century. Well, during the Enlightenment and after the post-Enlightenment, what you had was it's a possibility. I mean, you could, you could be uh, an atheist because we had these respectable people uh, that are now atheists. We had uh, political theorists that were atheists. We had psychologists that were atheists. We had people trying to explain natural theology who, who were at least proposing an atheistic view of the world. So it was now much more possible to be an atheist. And as we kind of turn the corner into where we are today in the 21st century, uh, we're at the place now, at least among the elite, where it's difficult to be a theist. That's why university professors all throughout our country, where you send your kids and spend good money to send them to these schools, I mean, by and large, you've got atheistic professors or at least practical atheistic professors that are not willing to look at any discipline of, of learning under the, rubric, under the heading or through the lens of, of theism. So we've seen this thing turn. That's why it's important for us to study what happened uh, in the Enlightenment and right after the Enlightenment. So that takes us to where we are today. Let's call this the new atheism, and I, I call it that only because that's what's caught on in the terminology of our day. People speak of the new atheist and new atheism. So let's think this through. How is this different? What does it look like now? Well, I've looked at the stars, the luminaries coming out of the Enlightenment, and they were very bold, but that's not where most of the elite were. They had to lead the way. They were the trailblazers. Uh, well, now our modern iteration of atheism uh, is much more militant. And I think that's important for us to see. You saw this from time to time in the rhetoric, and of course I picked the worst rhetoric of Karl Marx uh, or of Nietzsche that would say that religion is evil, but today it's an out-and-out out, you know, war on that. I mean, you'll see this in the late-night talk. You'll see this on the, you know, in, in the, you know, some of these uh, very liberal blogs and papers. You certainly see it in the lectures at the universities that God as a concept is evil and Christianity is immoral and religious belief is stupid. This is standard now among the elite and it's very uh, contagious, I think, among certainly the celebrities of our, of our culture. Now, I don't mean to offend you by these things, but at least you need to see what's going on around us. This is the stuff that people are exposed to, uh, and certainly the 18 to 22-year-olds are much more exposed to it than we are. But all these organizations that have popped up, these atheistic organizations, I mean, this was the kind of thing you would not see in other generations, but you see it now, calling, uh, you know, Jesus names, and that you didn't see before at all. I mean, I've got to blur some of this out just to be uh, respectable here, but that, that wasn't going on in the Enlightenment. Though you had a lot of people that were sitting in ivory towers, stroking their beards, smoking their pipes, and talking about concepts of reality without God in the equation. But now you've got, you've got an out-and-out -out attack. Now, again, they're quick to do this, by the way, on Internet websites about Christ on a cross. You don't see it as often uh, doing it to Muhammad in Islam. Have you noticed that? They won't even draw his picture because they'll come and kill you uh, depending on where, where you're at. I mean, 
So anyway, Christianity is, uh, yeah, an easy target. Can you read this one on the screen? I mean, here's t- this is a site selling T-shirts. The only church that illuminates is a burning church. Um, that's a new kind of atheism that we haven't had before. Uh, atheism, the knowledge that ghosts don't exist, death is final, magic is fake, good and evil is relative, consciousness requires a brain. See, again, you're stupid if you believe in God. And this isn't just on websites with guys in their underwear and, and their socks, you know, posting this stuff. This is stuff out on the street. Here's a series of billboards, for instance. Please don't indoctrinate me with religion. Teach me to think for myself. And this is just happening here and there. These kinds of things are, are popping up all over the place. I mean, I see little icons from time to time on websites that look like this, right? Throwing all religions in the trash. Bus banners. Godless, so are we. I mean, this is a kind of taking a, a, a celebratory view of, of atheism. This is much like Nietzsche and, and Karl Marx. What does religion mean to me? Never reaching your full potential as a human being, right? That's holding us back. It's a self-imposed immaturity, to, to quote Immanuel Kant. Here's another billboard. In the beginning, man created God. There's probably no God, so stop worrying um, and, and enjoy your life because that's what religion does. It makes you not in, enjoy your life. Then, of course, you've got them quoting Scripture, right? Colossians 3.22, slaves obey your masters, and putting up images like this on billboards in downtown areas. Lessons from, from Bronze Age ethics, which as though Colossians was written in the Bronze Age. Uh, that's not true, but okay. Uh, brought to you, uh, and again, mocking the uh, politicians, which lag behind university professors because politicians have to be directly elected by people, and people still with that eternity stuck in their hearts have a hard time voting for atheists in in politics which i mean we have one here in california there's a growing list and i couldn't find the latest in time to throw up a list on the screen Uh, but i think stark a congressman from california is one of the most early famous outspoken atheists he wasn't very articulate as an atheist but anyway nevertheless when the house of representatives you know declares the year of the bible this is the kind of stuff the atheists will put up here's something on a subway has religion stopped making sense well you're not alone here's a kid's website I'm getting too old for imaginary friends, kidswithoutgod.com. So new atheism is more militant. You should know that. And maybe you've been exposed to some of that. And we live in the atheist belt. So we, we will have uh, exposure to this in, in uh, California on the, on the West Coast. It's certainly more popular than it's ever been. Book sales alone should give us a sense of that. Now, I know these titles are too small to read, but there's a whole bookshelf full of them. I got a bunch in my library of best-selling books on atheism today. Uh, matter of fact, this website, which is misleading, I suppose, but back in 2007, a lot of these books came out in 2004, 2005, 2006. Uh, this one site, this was June 9, 2007, atheistic book sales uh, overtake Christian books. Uh, that's not entirely true, but at least in those bestsellers that they had out at that particular time, uh, the retraction or at least the sales of religious books were down by 10% that year, and uh, they were making that, that case on that website. So popularity big deal. And they've used that as an advertising ploy, as you'll see in ads like this, with all these luminaries and all these scientists and all these actors and actresses. Fear not hell, for if it exists, you shall find yourself in good company. Uh, which is kind of the thing I get from the, you know, the 16-year-old punk who tells me if I go to hell, I'll, I'll get to party with all my friends. And I get to tell them that, you know, I, let me inform you about what Jesus ta- said about hell. 
It's a place of outer darkness. You'll have no place to plug in your boombox. And it's a place of loneliness, right? Where you're away from the presence of God. You don't have parties. You don't assemble with your atheistic friends. You can't rent out the community center and and, and have a cocktail party. This is a place of outer darkness, complete loneliness, uh, where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is, this is juvenile in my mind to speak this way, but you see this happening today. New atheism, it's certainly more popular than, it, than it's ever been. Uh, the elites are uh, growing, I think, as a segment of our society, and it's much less tolerant. I say that because you could be an atheist in various places, and not always, uh, you know, in, in Marxist, socialistic, communistic places, but in a lot of the academic circles in years gone by or decades gone by, certainly in centuries gone by, you could be a religious person and not be persecuted for being a religious person. Today, that's not the case as much anymore. And one of the signs of that is the attack specifically on Jesus. Now, that was hard for people to attack Jesus directly, and that was kind of a uh, taboo. You didn't do that. You could say there is no God, and then you'd have to explain Jesus some way, but you wouldn't attack Jesus himself. That, that wasn't the norm. Now it's happening all over. This was a an ad that hung on, I think it was in New York. It was a huge, it draped over an entire building. It was a big ad uh, around Christmas time. Keep the Mary, dump the myth, picture of Christ. This is one example. And there's a lot of I, just such blasphemous things I don't even want to put on the screen about Christ. But I think of this, the myth and the picture is Jesus. The myth isn't God. The myth is Christ as though any intellectual person with any brain cells that work could actually deny the existence of, of Christ. You may have to explain him, as Lewis helps you to think through. I mean, he's, he's someone, he's deranged, or he's misled, or he's, he's you know, a bad you know, con man, or, or he's who he said it was. But, I mean, you're not going to deny the reality of, of, the, of, of Christ. Certainly not a man who died on a cross, whatever. That, that's just one of the indicators of the, of the kind of... Uh, lack of toleration, intolerance. There's certainly less accommodation for liberal forms of religion. They used to say, listen, as long as you're willing to extract the supernatural from your religion, if you can be like Thomas Jefferson and just take your Bible and extract all the the miraculous stuff out and then say, well, I'm going to believe in God. Maybe I'm going to be a deist. I'll believe that God is there, but he doesn't intervene in space and time. Well, then I'm fine with that. No, they're not fine with that anymore, at least least not in the new atheism. They're much less uh, tolerant about any forms of religion. It used to be that liberalism in, in, in classic Unitarianism or whatever, you could be a high church that didn't take the Bible seriously and at least the, the atheists wouldn't attack you. Now, any reference to the supernatural, uh, at least in many circles, is condemned. Why? Because a lot of these books that are being written are in essence saying religion is evil and teaching it to people is evil and just admitting theism is evil. Matter of fact, uh, there are some, and we'll talk about one of them in a minute, uh, thinks that raising your children in religion should be outlawed. And there's a lot going on in the courts today about that. And it's traceable back to Dewey and, the, and the, his view of, uh, of, of public education, why it was important to get people to be educated uh, with the government. But the reality of that today, particularly in California, I mean, the home, homeschooling movement, if you think about that, I mean, that was such a, an embattled thing that, that, that by God's grace for those that have taken advantage of that option was saved legally. But I mean, the battle certainly raged when people thought, I'm not going to let people educate their own children. Certainly, if they're going to teach them about religion, we don't want that to happen. And that's going to continue. As a matter of fact, it will get worse, even though there's been a little bit of a gain in terms of people being able to teach their kids uh, about religion. So anyway, it's less tolerant. And you see that all the time in the way these things are, are um, 
posited to us. I, I think of this uh, ad here that I saw. They're right, you're wrong. Again, all the quote-unquote intellectuals of our day who are telling us you just can't keep believing what you're believing. Yeah, you got, you've got to stop. So the shaming, the pressure. All right, let's talk about new atheism and, and the, the stars of, of the guys that are... The guys that are writing the books that your coworkers and neighbors are reading that um, you need to be uh, informed about in the time we have remaining. You know this guy. What's his name? Most famous atheist today, most outspoken atheist, Richard Dawkins. 1941 is when he was born. He's active. He's out there. I Sometimes when I can stomach it, I listen to his, his blog or watch something he posts or listen to one of his lectures, but he is... Um, and by the way, if you want a guy that responds to Dawkins well, another Oxford grad is uh, Alistair McGrath, who's really attacked a lot of what he's written. It just will expose him for the uh, kind of the junior high bully that he is. Anyway, he became famous for a couple of books. Uh, Selfish Gene uh, in 1976 was what gave him credentials in the academic community, um, which is a theory that genes are inherently selfish and all they want to do is replicate and it's the microcosm of evolution in, at large and whatever. Everyone then hooked on to that theory and, and evolution and, and so he, he had a platform. And then he wrote The God Delusion in 2006 and several books, good books, that have been written in response to that God Delusion book, which a lot of it is just pejorative. You know what I mean by that? It's just, it's ad hominem. It's name-calling. It's just, you're stupid. They're idiots. They're, I mean, it's not real argumentation. I know some of it is, but a lot of it isn't. His concept is that evolution, it, it decimates religion. It trumps religion. Everything about religion, it falls down because the foundation of religion has to be creation, and creation doesn't make any sense, and creation is not tenable. Therefore, evolution, just because now it's established, apparently, quote-unquote, it decimates religion. There's no place for religion anymore because evolution has supplanted it. From a quote from one of uh, Darwin's letters, and this is how incendiary he is, he calls himself the devil's chaplain, and that shows that he's very evangelistic about trying to get atheism to be accepted in our day, uh, Darwin was writing a letter to his friend about nature. Nevertheless, it was just a, a phrase in, in his letter about what the devil's chaplain might write on the cruel works of nature. But he picked up on that phrase, and he likes to call himself the devil's chaplain, which tells you something about his mindset here. Uh, religion and faith, he, he calls it a virus. He likes to call it that. Uh, he's coined the word meme, by the way, and as a mental gene. His concern is about us as parents. Uh, he not be, may not be as bad as some of his counterparts that write books with him, but he certainly doesn't want you to pass on your religion to your children. He thinks that should be, I mean, I don't know if he goes so far as to say outlawed. Some of his contemporaries would say that, but it's not right. Children are vulnerable. They're vulnerable to you teaching them the tradition that you pass on to them, and therefore uh, he calls that packet of information, you know, the, the meme. It's a replicatable, uh, transferable concept, and uh, he's against us passing those memes on uh, to our children. Uh, yeah, it's got to stop. Parents need to stop passing on religious memes to their kids. So much can be said about uh, Richard Dawkins. He is uh, very articulate, and with his British accent, he sounds smarter than he is. Uh, but he is certainly one of the, the probably the most outspoken and, and well-known uh, atheists today. And he certainly has all those characteristics that I've seen. Much more militant, much more intolerant, attack Jesus. All these things we find um, true of Dawkins. 
The other one in the quartet of key voices in the new atheistic movement is Sam Harris. He's the youngest of this group, born in 1967. He's got a very strange background. I think he went to Stanford, but he had some experiences with evangelicalism. He wrote a book called The End of Faith in 2004. He was raised in a Jewish home, but then he went off and dabbled in Eastern religion. He traveled and, and tried to get some of that firsthand. He's the founder of the, the group called, the, uh, called Project Reason. Um, Anyway, he is a uh, philosopher in, in essence, and uh, he says the problem with religion is, is it's rife with bad ideas. It's inherently evil in and of itself. It needs to be eradicated from the world and from America. It's a public danger. It's counterproductive. It doesn't help us. Uh, I know a lot of these hospitals and shelters and all these things that have been done for humanity have been done in religion, but that's just a facade. In reality, the heart of it is destructive uh, to society. It's leading us, he puts it this way, Christianity is leading us into ruin as a society. And he's very embarrassed for America, wishes we could be much more like Europe, particularly in the UK where more and more people are recognizing uh, that they need to be non-religious and more and more need to be uh, anti-theistic, as I put it. And uh, so he, you know, he, I'm sure he's, whatever, not happy with America, embarrassed by America. He calls Christians idiots, which again doesn't help with conversation and any intellectual uh, debate, but uh, not helpful. But he believes it. Believes that we're we're lacking in some um, some mental faculties. He wants an intolerance. He won't say the kind of. As a matter of fact, he distinguishes it from religious intolerance. I don't want to cut people's heads off. He says, but we need a conversational intolerance. In other words, we should not tolerate it. If someone speaks up about religion at work or at the lunchroom or whatever, it should not be tolerated because it is the evil of society. It needs to be eradicated. It's nothing but bad for us. Here's one that's died. Uh, Christopher Hitchens. I've quoted him before in some things I've written. Um, he died 19, um, I'm sorry, in 2011, not too long ago. Died in Houston. Uh, he's from England. He's a, uh, basically known for his criticism of religion. His book, 2007, I remember when it came out, and I, I bought it and started reading God is Not Great. Uh, and a lot of people have written in response to that. He was raised in the Church of England, uh, like Dawkins was, an Anglican. Uh, he later uh, said in, in time that religion is the problem with everything. Religion poisons everything. Religion is a fundamental threat to civilization. He sounds just like Sam Harris in that regard. It's bad. It's the cause of sexual repression. Uh, he's very concerned about our sexual freedoms and being, doing what we want to do. And he's, he's saying that's a problem. And he says basically, I mean, it's another way to put it. Christians are servile in their thinking. They're weak in their minds. They're idiots, to put it in Sam's terms. Sam's a little younger, uh, so he just calls us idiots. But uh, Hitchens is, is certainly a voice that needs to be contended with in modern atheism. And the last of the four is uh, Daniel Dennett, born in 1942. He's still going. Uh, he wrote the book in 1996 that preceded a lot of these books in 1996 called the, uh, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Uh, and then in 2006, when all these other books were coming out, which, by the way, were selling like crazy on the best-selling list for not just days or weeks but months, uh, wrote a book called Breaking the, the Spell which is all about us, again, freeing ourselves from the constraints of, of theism. What he does and how he contributes to this conversation is trying to say everything that we like to point to as Christians and say, well, you can't explain that with naturalism. He tries to explain that with naturalism, including in his focus of his research is our consciousness. Our consciousness is 
somehow, and it has to be, everything has to be explained in naturalistic terms, and he tries to explain really the core issue of our own consciousness in terms of naturalistic terms, right? Because if you take a body that's alive, you take a body that's dead, and, and you look at all those cells, I mean, they're all present. So there's something, we've got to deal with the problem of life itself and our, our own reflexive consciousness, and, and he, he writes on that. Um, he was a cognitive scientist. That's what he was trained to do, basically become a philosopher. Darwin trumps all other fields of learning. It's interesting how he describes that. It's like something that if it touches anything, it overtakes it. You cannot have evolution and not have it overtake all philosophy, all everything. It becomes the, the keystone to everything that is done in, in any academic environment. He illustrates it with a corrosive kind of acid that can't be put in any container because any container you put it in, it's going to eat it up. And so for him, like I've said, the prophets will say, listen, you've got to look at creation to recognize you've got a God who's sentient and can read and, or that can see and can hear and can perceive. Um, then that certainly becomes the focused attack of Daniel Dennett in his writings. Um, he says religion did pre- play a role in evolution because he has to explain everything by natural means. And he says certainly religion has play- played a role. It was an important part of our evolutionary process. But now that we've gotten a lot smarter, it's, it's unneeded and it needs to be discarded. So it played a role. The only reason it's there is because of our need to survive. And our need to survive needed it when we couldn't explain that it wasn't God slashing out with that lightning and thunder. You know, it was, it was science in, in his mind, the rules of, of nature. Uh, so now that we understand all that, we can discard this view of God. Now, I give you these three names because the world's constantly putting these guys up. They, they call them the four horsemen, right? Here they are. You've got them all uh, put out there. I mean, I, I just threw up their names and, and found them in all these graphics, all their Dawkins, Harris, Hitchens, and Dennett. They are, as some people would say, and there's all kinds of interesting graphics if you search them with catchy little phrases, but uh, I mean, they are the heavy hitters in most people's minds when it comes to establishing the foolishness of Christianity, uh, the idiocy of theism. Um, and I could go on and on with this, but I just want to show you that they are revered. Matter of fact, look at the pop culture reference here. They are rock stars in, in, in the academic circles. So um, these are the four that you should become somewhat familiar with. But a lot of his vitriol, a lot of it is name-calling, a lot of it is pejorative, a lot of it is ad hominem, a lot of it you'll find is just them bow, browbeating us and, and shaming us because of our, our, our views on, on God. Christianity amid the new atheism. What do we need? What should we do? Again, my job in Thursday nights this semester is exposing bad theology and talking about it and understanding it. It's not to defend good theology. I've tried to do that in other sessions and throughout our Compass Night series. But I at least want to end with some thoughts of what we need. Well, what we need is certainly a thoughtful and robust theology. We cannot raise our kids in a culture that is antithetical to theism, and it will be in the culture, increasingly so, without giving them uh, the tools to think and think through reasonably their theism. And, and so, you know, when we talk about memes, the memes we need are, are the replicatable concepts of thinking logically and, and thoughtfully through our theology. Because you can't say anything against the truth. You can only say, to use a biblical phrase, I can only do things in favor of the truth. Truth is something that is in keeping with reality. And reality is what reality is. And for us to decipher reality, we've got to teach our kids to think, and not just our kids, but ourselves. We can't just say, you know, because the Bible tells me so. We've got to know why the Bible is important. And I I want to put it this way, too. We must understand our brand of supernaturalism. I say that because everyone has a brand of supernaturalism, because since Einstein, since Hubble, 
you know, since the whole, you know, Big Bang theory, you've got no one that believes in the steady state theory or uniformitarianism anymore. In other words, they don't believe in an eternal matter. They don't believe that the world has always been here. They don't believe that the universe is, is a constant. Uh, everyone now is willing to admit, you know, because of entropy and thermodynamics and what we see in, in nature, our observable response to that is everything is dying. Therefore, everything had been here. There, we have a temporal universe. And that means that at some point, uh, even in the most atheistic view, you've got to come to a place where you have something supranatural because naturalism is not eternal. Uh, and so what do you do with that? I mean, even Dawkins has to answer those questions. And when he does, he starts speaking like a theist because he speaks of things beyond the natural. Uh, evolution itself, if it's built on natural laws, those laws didn't exist at some point. They had to exist. They had to come into existence. And all of that, you can explain the Big Bang to me all you want, but you come down to a place where there is something supranatural that sits outside of that. And you'll say, well, there's nothing that sat outside of that. And again, you're going to say then there is a set of rules that don't keep the rules that you want to play by to decipher a kind of evolution. And so all I'm saying is we have a brand of supernaturalism. We believe in a brand of, I do at least, and I hope you do. They have a brand of supernaturalism as well. It's just different. And we need to figure out whose supernaturalism makes the most sense. And as Geisler and Turek wrote in their book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, their concept of that book is basically, the thesis is, you really have a bigger leap to take in terms of the supernaturalism of atheism than you do the supernaturalism of theism, which is an interesting premise of their book. But it's good. It's a readable book. It's not hard. It's in our bookstore if you want to read that. We've got to strengthen our understanding of Revelation. And I think in, in um, Al Mohler's book on atheism, a, Atheism Remix, I think is what it's called. I mean, that's the final concept in his book. And that's the idea of, you're right, we've got to understand our view of Revelation. God has revealed himself. To put it in Francis Schaeffer's term, there is a God and he has revealed himself. And if that's the case, we need to understand that concept. That's why I'm more than any other series in Compass Night, I'm always sending people back to the Bibliology series because we better understand where our Bible came from and what the concept of Revelation is and what our claim is. If there is a supernatural, and of course even atheists believe in something beyond the natural, they just don't believe it now, uh, we believe that there is a God who stepped into time and space and that we, we need to understand. And there's much more I could say about that, but I'm running out of time. Got to remember, it's, God is not the God of the gaps. That's an old line, the atheists that have debated me always say, well, you guys used to believe God was blowing the wind and God was putting down the, you know, the, uh, the lightning bolts and God was exploding the mountains. And now we know how volcanoes work and God was shaking the earth. And now we understand plate tectonics. So you, your God keeps getting squeezed out. And even though we've got points that we can't explain now, the, the atheists tell me, eventually, as you can see, the pattern is God's getting squeezed out of, of, of any of our understanding of the phenomenon of nature. In other words, what is can be explained without God increasingly, so therefore you don't need God anymore. The God of the gaps is not, I, I don't fall to that, you know, that premise because I don't believe in the God of the gaps. I don't believe that God is a God that is only needed in things we can't understand. I believe that God is needed by the things we can understand. The entirety of it all necessitates God, not the things that I can't explain through some kind of law of nature. And I don't have time to get into that. I think I taught some of that when we dealt with uh, theology proper, but we're not dealing with the God. of the, We don't need God only when we can't explain something in, in nature. We need God to explain why there's something rather than nothing. And um, that necessitates God. And as Geisler says, it takes a lot more faith to believe all that was without God. Anyway, we must never forget the moral element of unbelief. And you'll see this, I think, in every friend of yours that wants to claim that they are atheists. There is a moral 
driving reason for that. The Bible's clear. We don't want to step into the light because our deeds will be exposed. We want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The concept of that has to be understood whenever we talk to an atheist that I, I like to ask them this question, and I know you've heard me say this a million times, but I want to ask them if I could reasonably convince you with enough evidence right now, if you're going to tell me you're open to evidence, if I could do that, would you become a Christian today? And nine times out of ten, they say no. And the point then is an intellectual problem. The point then is a volitional problem. This is, a voli- this is a issue of your will. And if we can remember that as we deal with people who claim to be atheists or agnostics or nuns out there, non-religious people, uh, that's important for us to remember. Yeah, the moral element of this. Which, by the way, that... And again, I know he's a straight-ahead, you know, it's just a straight-ahead kind of video, but that Ray Comfort video certainly illustrates that. The atheist delusion in his, in his video, how quickly people can recognize when they're confronted with the right line of, of questions that I have a moral problem that is greater than my intellectual problem with theism. So, and with that, I'm out of time. Bad theology, one more week to go. Next week, we'll wrap it up. So please come back and bring someone with you. Yes.